Hey friend, when was the last time you listened to a podcast that told you everything you needed to know to break into or do your work in the field of continuing medical education and continuing education for health professionals? If it's been a hot minute, or like never, you've arrived at the right podcast. In fact, you've arrived at Right Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. Are you feeling stuck in your work? Are you looking for inspiration from your peers? Are you looking for a way to break into this incredibly rewarding and intellectually satisfying field? Well, Right Medicine is here to offer you guidance and strategies as you navigate all phases of CME and CE creation. Every Wednesday, join me, Alex Housen, a medical writer specializing in CME and CE content creation as I host thoughtful, provocative, and rich conversations with guests about adult learning, content creation techniques, effective formats in CME and CE, and trends in healthcare that influence the type of content we create. Right Medicine is here to motivate you to learn and grow as a CME and CE professional, wherever you are in the content creation process. If your work involves planning, designing, creating, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. Hello and welcome to Write Medicine. If you're a listener and you're tuning into our first Friday feature, you're likely a medical writer who's curious about medical writing in this specialized world of continuing medical education and continuing education for health professionals. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Dr. David Mendes, who shares insights from his journey transitioning out of academia and into a career in medical writing. David completed his PhD in neuroscience at McGill University in Montreal. And during his graduate studies, like many of us, he realized that landing a professorship was unlikely, so he started exploring alternative careers. After finishing his PhD, he secured his first role as a medical writer at an agency and has since worked as a freelance medical writer and translator. In today's episode, David reflects on the skills he developed during his PhD that helped him move into medical writing. Some of these transferable skills include resilience in tackling long-term projects, communication abilities, and networking. Here are some of our key takeaways. David says that only 10 to 20% of PhDs actually end up in academic positions. So it's really important for graduate students to explore alternative careers early in their graduate training. Resilience, communication skills, Project management and data analysis are only some of the skills that PhDs and academics can use in medical writing and in continuing education for health professionals. But you've got to do the work to figure out what those skills are. And I know that from my own experience. That takes time. And treat networking and informational interviews as a long game rather than expecting immediate success. And if you are an academic who's in the process of moving into CME writing, I can help you get there with Ready Steady CME. This short audio course comes with a CME competency self-assessment and uses the skills framework, your roadmap to CME writing mastery. Ready Steady CME will help you develop an inventory of your current skills, 
Determine the deliverables you can offer your prospective clients and locate clients seeking writers for those specific deliverables. Enroll in Ready Steady CME via the link in the show notes. Now, let's get into today's episode. Welcome, David. Hey, hi, Alex. Good to see you again. We had a conversation last week for your podcast, Beyond the Thesis. Yes. And now we're going to talk a little bit about some of your insights into academia, transitions, and the the importance of diversification while you're still doing your graduate work. So please tell listeners a little bit about who you are and the work that you do. Well, Alex, first, thanks for having me on uh, on, uh, the Right Medicine podcast. I'm super happy to be here. And this is really, you know, you know, you've, we've talked, so, you know, it's, it's a subject that's close mm-hmm. to my heart. The blind spots, the, the, you know, the, the blind angles that we have while we are in graduate school in terms of career outcomes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, super, super happy to be here. My uh, journey has, has been diverse. And uh, the first, it's funny because when I first got to the end of my PhD and figured out, okay, this the professorship is not, you know, I'm not going to follow that up. Uh, it's not going to materialize. And the first job, you know, job, full-time job that I got was actually in medical writing. And yeah, <laughs> but but right. we, can, we can get back to that point. But if we rewind from there, uh, I come from Portugal. Uh, I was born in Belgium, grew up in Portugal, did my undergrad in microbiology and my master's in microbiology and genetics there, then stopped, you know, stayed actually working at the lab uh, as an assistant for uh, for a little while, and then got a couple of, of different jobs, some, some in communication, but eventually a job, a teaching lab uh, at a private university in Lisbon. And that's when I, I, I felt, you know what, I should go for the PhD because I'd like to teach to, you know, just TAing lab is, is you know, is, it was good, it was fun, but I, I, I wanted to teach, teach class. And that's why when I decided to go for a PhD and uh, I got into this PhD program in the University of Coimbra in Portugal, which eventually uh, a year, so we had a year of seminars and then we had to choose. I visited a couple of countries and labs. And then I decided to come to here to Montreal, where I ended up staying six years-ish, doing the, the, the lab part of my PhD at the Montreal Neurological Institute. So that's my academic background. I've always been a tinkerer. Uh, I've always you know, been uh, curious about nature, about how things work. And, and, you know, and, and I've always taken pleasure in explaining, being able to explain or simplify or even explain to myself find a way to 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 digest things that are complex into simpler ones and I, and i guess this is where there's kind of a parallel between my desire usually in the beginning which was to teach and then what i ended up doing and what i still do today as a medical writer which in a way kind of ends up being the same thing you you have these complex you know studies documents ideas that you need to digest and bring to a level where a certain audience, and you know this very well, it can be pub- the public, it can be healthcare professionals, it can be you know management, whatever. But you need to digest it and and uh, write it down, or create, or or ask the graphic artist to create something that will bring the idea through in a in a 
better way. So I, I, I don't know if this was too fast of a, <laughs> of a sum up, but yeah, this is, this is kind of my journey, of course. So I was first working for almost five years in, in an agency, in a in medical communications agency here in Montreal, where I learned uh, the, the, the craft of being a medical writer. There was a great onboarding system there and, and, and con actually continuing uh, training throughout the time that I was there. And then eventually, I, uh, my second child arrived and I decided to, and also an opportunity uh, arose to translate for a CME agency here in Montreal, but on my own as a freelancer. And that's where I kind of left uh, the, the nine to five. And uh, ever since I've had, I've been having different clients and working some writing, some translating and, uh, and other related things. And, and this is what I'm doing today. The podcast, just because it's the thing that people might be wondering, what about the podcast <laughs> beyond the thesis yes. is something I've started <laughs> on the side since 2019. It's a passion project. And it has to do a lot with what we're going to talk, going to talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to ask you where you learned the craft of writing, because one of the things that you, you said very early on is that you love to teach. And you obviously, well, it seems to me you see yourself as, as a teacher. And that's a very particular thing. And you, you, know, you have that interest in explaining how things work. And that's certainly one of the things that kind of pulls people into, mm -hmm. well, academia, but also medical writing and uh, continuing medical education as well. That desire to communicate how mm -hmm. things work and how to make things better too, I think. I think that's an underlying impulse yes. for, mm -hmm. for a lot of, of people. So d just kind of thinking about academia you you spent a long a long time in in academia and at some point realized that you know being on that professor trajectory wasn't necessarily for you and and you've talked on your podcast and in other conversations that you know something like 20% of PhDs actually remain in academia mm -hmm. so how does that inform the work that you're doing with Beyond the Thesis? Because you've described that as a passion project, but yeah. underlying that passion is a very kind of gritty structural reality for a yes. lot of people who end up on the PhD path. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, you mentioned the 20% statistic, and I, I have to say it's an optimistic one. And I've seen hmm. in different, and of course, this from country to country changes, but I've I've heard 20 as a kind of optimistic one, then 15, but other places they say 10, and it also depends on the domain. But the thing, the, the thing that brought me to start a podcast about what people do after getting their degree, especially when they don't become uh, professors, was the fact that I had a hard time first dealing with that because, you know, you spend all these years in graduate school and it's kind of an identity. And we talked about this in our conversation. It's yeah, an identity that you're cultivating. I am an academic. I am a researcher. I live in labs. I use, in my case, I use pipettes. I, uh, <laughs> I analyze data and I discover things, scientific things, and eventually I publish them. And when you, you get to the end of the, the, of the PhD, in, in my case, and, and in the case of a lot of my, of my guests, and you, you see that somehow the system is telling you well, this is not going to materialize for you. It's it's very unsettling. It's very difficult. Some people uh, have a, a hard time dealing with this this 
kind of obligation to shed an identity and now be scrambling to find a new one. And so I went through this. Uh, I, I didn't hear about these statistics uh, about you know one fifth, uh, at most one fifth of PhD students having access to a position as a tenured professor uh, until much later on. I was already doing the podcast mm. when I when I learned that. But what I what I what happened is that when I finished, I got some invitations to take part in career panels, and namely because there, there's an interest in in my domain in in the life sciences. In medical writing, there's always every year there's curiosity mm. because, like you said, or like we were talking before starting the the interview, somehow because writing is something that uh, you you also cultivate while you're a graduate student. Maybe it's also also something that you bring from from behind. In my case, it wasn't writing per se, uh, but languages. I've al- I've always mm. had a, a knack and a, and a love for languages. Actually, when I was in high school, I was in the French, uh, in the French system, and at a certain point, I told my parents, "Well, either it's going to be what we call in Portugal Germanics, so German, English, that, or biology, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And my right. my, par- my parents said, "Well, go for science, and then you know languages, you'll you'll pick, you'll pick it up later." And <laughs> funnily enough, then I now I'm a translator of, of all things. It, it's interesting right. how they kind of so you really did, <laughs> yeah, I really did, but. What I was seeing it was year after year in different career panels in you know f- for different student groups, I saw these graduate students that were in this angst of all being kind of like me, uh feeling that hmm this it doesn't seem like like I'm gonna you know have my lab in two years, and I have no idea what else I can do and and i I even may be starting to feel that I'm failing at life. Because this where this is where I had put all my eggs in this basket, you know, and this was actually the the reason uh, why the, when in 2019 I set out to to start the podcast because I, I said okay nine years it's too much for nothing to change and after nine years also I now had people who had been with me in the lab or in the on the in the lab next door and who whom I knew were now. You know, you know, uh, had CEOs of startups and and had diff- or, or science illustrators or whatever, and and I thought, okay, you know what, I am going to start sharing the stories and the journeys of these people, so that graduate researchers around me and ideally everywhere can be exposed and 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 can find you know can find inspiration and and also solace in the fact that people are having you know interesting. Uh, exciting, stimulating, uh, and intellectually uh, fulfilling careers outside of the ivory tower. That, that's that's kind of the 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 origin story of it. Well, thanks for sharing that uh, that journey. I'm really struck by a phrase that you used, and I think we talked about this before. You know, you're shedding a, an identity. Yeah, <laughs> but it seems to me that. There, there are two things that kind of work side by side. You know, on the one hand, there is this for many of us who end up in academia for long periods of time and then outside it. There is this angst about failure, about letting people down, including yourself, mm-hmm. about a waste of resources and investment. But yet on the other you know, you're talking to people on your podcast who have 
you know, as you described it, they're doing exciting things. They're doing stimulating work outside the academy. So these two things kind of coexist, as it were. Mm -hmm. But why do you think that that failure discourse is so prominent Mm -hmm. for people who move out of academia, either while they're doing their PhD or after it? Well, I'll have to. I'll, I'll think. Of, I'll think about it as as we go. But one thing that happens is that somehow there there's a, a culture or, or a discourse within academia where you, as you go, you know, undergrad, masters, and PhD, you you have the, there is this discourse that that says, you know, that echoes in the hallways that says anything outside these walls is bad they only you know it's a uh, money you know money grabbing uh, ventures uh, it's you know it's it's not noble uh, so any any job that is commercial or whatever at least non academic mm-hmm. has is degraded in terms of the, its value for your uh, life uh, project and for your your development professional and personal they, they, I'm exaggerating it maybe a little bit in my words, but there is this this discourse out there, and and because you spend mm-hmm. all these years inside these walls, you you take it on as as being the truth, and because also often what happens is that one each each step that you go higher in you know from undergrad to masters, masters to PhD, your universe of people that you see from you know day to day. It limits itself to academics mm. or people who want to be academics, and then it's kind of it's it's the same um, that term that uh, that came out during COVID. Uh, it's the echo chambers. It's it's a sort of an echo mm-hmm. chamber. The same way, if you go to industry, you can hear that oh, but scientists are you know are dreamers. They they spend all this time to get tiny results. Th- there's there's a mismatch of preconceptions from one side to the other of of this invisible mirror but if we again go back to graduate students what's unfair is that because this culture is there it kind they kind of they're not enticed and it's not even enticed they're, they're kind of discouraged of seeing what's out there because already mm. it's dirty or it's less noble and then the of the like like we said one in five get a position as a professor well the other four just shot themselves in the foot by not starting to explore a little bit earlier on and then needing to scramble and spend a whole year to refigure out what their career journey is all about yeah i know there's so many rich metaphors actually in in what you've just described and and i think you're right you mentioned you know clean and dirty there is that division between the sacred and the profane yes the, the the sacred being you know the academy and the 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 hallowed halls mm-hmm. and the profane being you know where the rest of us kind of uh <laughs> you know where we, where we end up where we dwell so, <laughs> exactly exactly yeah and and it does and it does persist although I think we see signs that some of that is it's been breaking down in different ways over the last you know two or three decades but mm. we'll we'll put that to the side for now because I want to dig into that question of You've done it. You've seen other people, your peers do it. You know, find a place for yourself and your talents and your skills outside academia. So what was it that you did while you were in academia or 
the people that you saw heading off to work in these startups and so mm -hmm. on that helped you to find work that works for you mm -hmm. outside of an academic context? Actually, in my case, things were getting difficult. My experiments weren't working. I, you know, I had a hard time at the end of the PhD, so I, I was in troubleshooting mode for a lot of that time. So I didn't do a lot. The what I did that ended up helping me was that I didn't stay within the confines of my own lab. I did take part in uh, in the activities of the institute, and be it uh, I don't know sports events. Uh, uh, in, I, what what clubs? There was soccer. There was uh, in the summer there was softball, and I I was meeting with people, be it masters or, or PhD students from other labs, and. Where I want to get with this is this one word, which again, some people can find that it's dirty, which is networking. Mm -hmm. The path towards that first job as a medical writer was through a couple of master students whom when I, I, you know, when I had finished, I had defended and I went back to my colleagues and asked, where are these people or, or where are people going uh, after after?" leaving the institute that are not uh, going for a doc or a postdoc. And they, they told me, oh, this, this person and this person are both working at this place and it's medical writing. And I didn't, you know, I didn't have the slightest idea what that meant. But then what I did was, although I didn't, I wasn't friends with them per se, but, you know, we knew each other. We had talked, we had uh, exchanged. Well, I, I, I don't remember if LinkedIn was a thing by then, but I reached out to them, I believe on LinkedIn. And asked what it was about, and one of them actually said, "You know what? If you're interested, send me your CV. Let's I can look at it, and then I can I can pass it on to HR." Uh, so yeah, networking. Uh, it, it was very rud rudimentary and very last minute. I looking back, or let's okay, let's not say looking back. Looking forward, when when a young mm. graduate student comes to me, what I say, and they're like in their second year of the PhD, what I say is start right now. Start right now expanding your network. First, maybe within your institute. So don't, for sure, don't stay just within yeah. the confines of your lab. But ideally, try to imagine yourself not as a professor, but as something else. And then look, let's say on LinkedIn, who is out there, you know, that has kind of the same path, academic path as me, but that's doing something a little bit out there that I find inspiring and reach out to these people. That would, that would be the, the message that I would send to myself to to the past, but that I'm sharing now, uh, whenever whenever mm -hmm. I have the chance with with uh, graduate researchers. Yeah, do you think networking has changed? I mean, I, I know that you, yeah, for some people it is a it is a dirty word. Uh, it's certainly a threatening word because it requires people to you know to put them out themselves out there mm -hmm. in a way that you know doesn't always have good results. And so it's a set of muscles that you have to kind of exercise mm -hmm. and and practice, and I think increasingly be strategic about. I mean, I think you know I've been on LinkedIn actually since two thousand and seven, and I think it started around two thousand and four. And one of the things about LinkedIn is that, of course, it's it's designed to promote that kind of professional exactly. networking, which I personally find much more accessible than being on other social media platforms. And that's partly because there is an expectation of professionalism and we can unpack what that <laughs> what that word means. But there is a there's a limit 
in the expectations of how much vulnerability to engage in on that particular mm-hmm. platform. Yeah. But it but it is a skill, it is a skill to learn. And I like how you're kind of, you know, designing that journey into networking by starting from where you are, starting with your immediate environment, because it is very narrow, but you yeah. can always, you know, kind of widen out in the institution that you're currently, you know, doing your 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 graduate work in. I think one of the things that, you know, as you began that conversation with your colleague mm-hmm. in, uh, you know, around medical writing, what were some of the things that you had to do to look at your skill set and figure out whether there was a match or a, a, an alignment between mm. what you had been doing and what a potential employer was looking for in, in that medical writing context? Mm. Because I think this is one of the things that can be really challenging yeah. for people who are doing their PhD. What are my skills? Yeah, no, it's true. It's hard to go back to that conversation and, and remember it or to those conversations. Mm. Of course, one of the things I, I must have done, uh, and I don't recall it exactly, was to ask as many questions I could about what the exact work was. What is what what's what's your role as a medical writer? What what's your day to day? And you know, once once I knew that, and in that in our in the case of the place I was working with, it was mostly writing different materials for sales forces, be it because there's a drug launch or mm. you know uh, updates to an indication, you know, new something new uh, in the in the treatment landscape or competitor landscape, etc. We were writing materials about that. Eventually. It, the, the paperless meeting era was arriving as I was leaving, and that changed a little bit the type of, of product that was being produced. But uh, you know, there was some e-learning starting to be introduced, and games, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But mm-hmm. wh- why? Yeah, I, I know for sure that the fact that I had this love and 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 ability uh, or with languages, and when they said, "Well, this is writing," and it's it's explaining, you know, one of the things they say when you arrive, it's writing and you need to write as if they these are, if you're writing to, uh, I don't know, a 12-year-old, uh, you know, sec- second year, secondary level people. So it's a simplification in a way. Mm-hmm. And there's there's referencing. So th- there's a bunch of stuff that just in, in writing your thesis, you've trained yourself to do the whole site as you write uh, thing, which was a, yeah. a slogan that they, were, <laughs> that they used. I, I don't know if it's common throughout the community i think it's actually particularly attached to one particular uh referencing software platform <laughs> oh yeah well i, I that I, I don't know i, I think anyway it, it's possible i i didn't know that but one thing that happened one of the things that happened too is that clearly this uh, this agency was constantly hiring young grad they uh, they knew that a bunch of people were coming out of graduate school and not mm-hmm. having a, a plan per se so the, the the reason why it worked so well and fast was it was kind of a two way street. I for right. me I felt like the 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 explaining, the you know thinking about gr- you know graphic ways to represent ideas etc cetera, etc. Cetera, it felt it was enticing to me the fact that I had the languages. I thought okay I'm a good candidate and I think on the other side also when the person said well show me your CV let's see, 
you know meant that also on the on the side of the company there's probably incentive for employees to bring new employees so i don't know if mm -hmm. this is a very satisfactory <laughs> uh, answer but you know there's a lot of serendipity in these things and luck and mm -hmm. yeah i, I can't take a lot of responsibility by of, of being very strategic and structured it happened you know there's some some aspect of luck in there i guess and i hate to say, I hate yes. to say it but you know what it comes up with a lot of my guests too it's not uh you can't really account I think, for it but yeah go ahead yeah no i think that's interesting because i think that when people i think you're right when people do start to kind of look at their own trajectory one of the things that they do anchor that that experience onto is luck but there is a line of thinking that you know you you actually have to strategically prepare for luck mm -hmm. yeah and yeah. and lay and lay the groundwork and there's an author called christian bush who wrote a book on serendipity mm -hmm. and he he sort of unpacks all the different uh, strategies and practices that we can engage in to actually make serendipity possible mm -hmm. and so that begins to you know unpack a little bit that idea that it it's all down to luck and i think that's and and you're not saying it's all down <sighs> to luck you 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 are saying that you did particular things but i think that's a really important message for not just people in academia you know looking for that alternative mm -hmm. but anyone who has invested you know and i think we talked about this last week you know anyone who has invested a significant amount of time in building a professional identity mm -hmm. in medical writing that is not only people who've worked in academia but also clinicians yeah. you know health professionals and you know, academics and scientists and sometimes journalists as well, you know, they've spent 10, 20, maybe even 30 years investing in this identity, which, as you pointed out, isn't just about how you see yourself, but it's the connections that you make with other people within that circle that reinforce your sense of professional identity. But then something happens, they're pushed or they're pulled, <laughs> a pandemic perhaps. Yeah. Some priority changes. Really yeah. Priorities change for all sorts of reasons, right? As you know, life unfolds, and so they're kind of left questioning: How am I going to make a living? How am I going to move from where I am now into what is hopefully a better place? Mm -hmm. And so they really start have to start digging into what are those transferable skills yeah. we used to talk about in the 1980s. I'm not sure if we talk about them anymore, but but that's what they are. What is it that you've learned that you can apply somewhere else? Yeah. And I think that, so my next question mm -hmm. is, when you are doing your interviews with mm -hmm. people on your podcast, when you're talking to people who've made that transition in one way or another, what are some of the skills that they identify that have helped them move from academia into something else. Mm -hmm. Are there particular things that 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 stand out? Well, when so the PhD is a is a particular it's a very special animal in terms of you know mm -hmm. lawyers you know it's easy to to say what a lawyer is going to be even if they're not going to be practicing. You know, there's, there's, it's easy to to hire someone who comes with a background as a lawyer. Same thing for an engineer. But the, the PhD, although it sounds like it's in the same kind of tier of things, it's not really because it's so diverse. 
a PhD mm-hmm. in social sciences is can be you know light years apart in terms of nature from a PhD in I don't know physics or uh, or, or absolutely and 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 that creates a challenge which is we cannot well, now the term is is eluding uh, uh, me you know you you can't you it's a it's very much a case by case or at least you know within a domain you maybe you can generalize that was the term i was i was looking for but it's it's we need to tread carefully when generalizing about the phd now skills that things that the phd you know trains to you and i'm going to go from the more general to maybe then the more specific resilience so anything mm-hmm. where you're going to be working on a three-year-long project, a year-and-a-half-long project, not everyone is is made for that. But if you come out of a PhD, most probably you won't be afraid of having a job that entails you being in a team that's going to be working on something that's very long-winded and with, you know, very, with objectives and goals, goal posts mm-hmm. that are quite mm-hmm. far. And I think that's a skill. And I think it's you know it it's it's it it can be a very crucial skill for different employers and different team leaders mm-hmm. now another one a bit more specific although sometimes i think it may be exaggerated because uh, and you'll see why is uh project management and i'm saying it can be exaggerated because you know you can't you can get training in project management it's a very mm-hmm. complex and uh, you know very specific you know, a set of, of skills. Uh, you know, if you get certified, uh, I, I don't remember, it's PMP, I think, is one of the, the certifications. Yeah, there is a certification body, mm. isn't there? Exactly. You need to be careful when you say, oh, uh, uh, I'm skilled at project management because I managed my whole PhD program. Of course, if you say it that way, it, it's probably too strong, but you can you can kind of break it down and actually explain what type of project management tasks or or goals or results you had that you can show and that's one thing that i think is important in this identifying and and sharing and and popularizing the the the, the skills the transferable skills and yes it's still very much actual the term uh is to talk about numbers talk about tell a story instead of saying mm. I am skilled in project management because I did a PhD, which the person who maybe has a PMP certification will say, yeah, not really. <laughs> but if yeah. uh, during my PhD, I onboarded, so I don't know, six uh, undergrads uh, to, to, to work in the lab. You know, I was responsible for ordering this and this, or uh, I was uh, managing the animal collection of the... There's many ways you can tell the story and that the person was, the person will say okay check 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 versus mm. just saying the term the general term and the person will just have question marks uh, in their in their head i don't know if this if i'm being clear or a bit a bit roundabout no i think that's helpful because i think you know one of the things it's almost like a translation it you know is. you have to kind of it look at totally. what you're doing and yeah and then translate that into language that the person you're talking to is going to understand and yeah. so you talk about onboarding, you know, undergraduates into the, our, uh, I, I can't remember if you said undergraduates. Yeah, See, it, all of this is foreign to me because yeah. I, you know, I was a social sciences <laughs> PhD. Yeah. So it's all very different. But yeah, that idea of onboarding and, and I would never have thought of, and onboarding is a very, it, you know, it's a very specific project management mm-hmm. thing, right? Mm-hmm. 
And so being able to describe what you're doing, I don't know what, how you would describe it without using that word onboarding, but onboarding isn't a very kind of academic. No, it's not a word with a lot of academic purchase. And so no, no. to be able to make that translation, I think is actually a skill. It and is. so you have to do, you have to do some more research there into, you know, the places where you're thinking about, you know, applying for work or applying for, for jobs mm -hmm. so that you can, you can enter into that exactly. translation and have, world and have the lingo. Yeah. I totally agree in the culture. Yeah. Now it's, it's very interesting that you mentioned this because I think it, for me, at least in the way I see things, it connects back to the networking and to, especially mm -hmm. to the, this model that I try to, <laughs> to push, which is to start early and to start the networking, to start a, it's, it's as if you get, have a new hobby. Uh, you you have uh, it's funny one of my guests and she's a good friend Fiona Robinson she said she started scrap do, doing kind of a, a scrapbook of job postings that she liked and it's kind of the same thing with with networking with growing your network let's not let's not call it networking with expanding mm -hmm. your network it's like you you have this scrapbook and you eat every month once every, every month you say okay now i'm going to add a new segment to my to this page and see if i can complete the page and turn to the next page and uh, i see this person who was in my school in my program and is now yeah. artistic director of this museum you know what i'm going to reach out to them and and um, and yeah and ask to, to 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 talk to them and to ask to just ask them how that transpired and people are flattered usually to and if they have the time to be able to tell their story and and this is why you were talking about how it can be a little bit menacing to reach out to people but if you start early enough you're not expecting a job you're not expecting anything from the person except them sharing their story i think it lowers the menacing aspect a lot and then 3 years passed and you'll see that you have this whole scrapbook or this whole garden of connections that you've made you know, even though it might have been just the 15 minutes or 20 minutes or other ones that actually kind of snowballed into into something mm -hmm. more. And during these these, these uh, this scrapbooking, this experiment, this talking with people, you will start to hear terms coming back. And this on, you'll see, they'll say onboarding and like, what does onboarding mean? They'll explain to you and now it's part of your lingo and you yeah. can use it back the day, two, three years from now, where you're actually going to be interviewing for a job in that space. That's why I, I was making the the connection, I, I, and and I think because I think it's really it's really tough to successfully network yourself into a position when you are really stressed to get a job. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it's a long game yeah. and, and one that needs to be quite you know natural and organic in a certain way. Yeah, I love that that you actually describe it as a long game because I completely agree with that. I I know that you know as as I was trying to build my freelance writing business, you know, way way back, it could take anything between six months to two years between making that first contact with a new person in my network to actually landing some kind of contract, mm -hmm. and so that that consistency of of growing your network as part of your marketing strategy, but we're not talking about marketing in the in the PhD context. We're talking about you know further downstream, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. starting that process early. And actually, I think you have shared a strategy, which is you know to start early, to create a map 
of people that you already know and people that you already know who have made some kind of transition outside of academia and begin with a connection with with them. And, you know, networking is just making business friends. Yeah. I think Elise Bennon, who runs Marketing Mentor, is, is you know, someone who kind of promotes that, that idea. And then after you've made that map, have conversations with people. Because as you say, you know, people like to talk about themselves. Yeah. And they and they do feel flattered that you you see what they are doing as some kind of indicator or metric of success. I think everybody wants to feel that what they're doing is successful and effective. Yeah, no, of course. And then and I and that idea of having a, a scrapbook or a vision board or something yeah. that actually I think that's the key that helps you visualize what that map looks like mm-hmm. and how it's been growing. I'm getting conscious of our time together, so. Thinking about, you know, you've already kind of hinted at this a little bit, the actionable advice that you would give people mm-hmm. who are, you know, in the middle of their PhD or they're just about to leave and they're they're either considering alternative career paths or they're being forced to yeah. think about uh, alternative career paths. And I think when you're in those are two different mindsets, aren't they? Because they if you've already decided for yourself that you, you want to look for something else, then you, there's a certain energy about that. But if you've started looking for academic posts and they're not forthcoming, yeah. you're much more fatigued and downhearted. Mm-hmm. And that's a different kind of place to start that alternative journey. So. I guess there's two questions there, and uh, it's probably not a short answer, and that's totally fine. <laughs> no, it, it's it's okay. And I like I like I said, I kind of alluded to it, but well, let's let's go with the let's start with the uh, the end. Or can I just can I just add one thing because I was I was just going through general to specific. I just wanted to tell one more specific skill mm. that uh, that people that that really gets people jobs, or at least has in the last few years, is data analysis. Uh, and yeah. and because even when you're in social sciences, uh, you end up having you know if you're doing something quantitative, you will be doing some statistics and 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 programming. And people have mm-hmm. I think now the market is getting more and more difficult, but uh, have been hired as data data scientists and uh, yeah. in in all sorts of very cool industries. So I just wanted to to, to say that one. No, I think it's really important. Kind of, actually, a more yeah. specific, uh, more specific one. Now, going back yeah. to deciding to go or feeling pushed out. And the second part, and I've, I've met people, I've even met people who were, who were professors and, and had for some reason, uh, it could be a personal reason, a health reason, or, you know, which other, whichever other reason to kind of leave that, that track after actually starting as in their, on their tenure track, for example. But their mental health didn't didn't allow them, and that that mm-hmm. is associated with, from from what I've seen, with some heavy feelings of failure, uh, but also having to kind of let go. You know, uh, it's like when you lose someone, you know, you you had you had nothing uh, you could do to to prevent the the person leaving. And for some people, this happens with their career. Against mm-hmm. their will, they they are pushed out or they they need to leave. And uh, f- for if 
you're in the situation and psychologically it's been difficult, the first thing I want to say is go and get professional help. If you're still in university, go get the help that university that university shares. When I was in this very difficult situation at the end of my PhD, I went to the to the counseling services uh, here at McGill University, and it helped me. It helped me mm-hmm. a, a lot. So don't hesitate to do that. And I know this is kind of a parenthesis <laughs> versus what we're talking about, but I think it's an important one. I agree, hundred percent. Then. One of the things I, so again, still thinking of people who already were starting sort of a career and kind of solidifying this identity and and have to leave, don't underestimate the networking that you've already done up till now. It could be that your next step professionally resides in a conversation with someone who's already in, in a professional network that you have already built. If you are, If you're a first year, second year, you know, t- tenured professor, you've done a lot of networking already, maybe even yeah. with people in industry, et cetera, et cetera. So don't let your your feeling of dejection, if, it, if it's there, shut away all of that chapter because there might be some nuggets in there still for you to extract. So that, yeah. <laughs> that's one reflection uh, just off the top, off top of my head from what you said. If you're figuring out now that, hmm, this is not materializing, I'd better start looking then I would double down on LinkedIn. If you're good at writing and, and copywriting, etc., you know, make your, your LinkedIn profile the best story possible of your journey up till today. If not, there are people out there helping you, uh, helping people make the, you know, put their best foot forward on LinkedIn. And then, just like I said, look for people who maybe you can first look, because I think on LinkedIn you can put filters on search so you can look for people from your university you can look for people mm-hmm. that have phd in their uh, in their name uh, that maybe come from uh, your program or, or are in your domains people who whom you have some common ground with that interests you of course because you need to be genuine you, faking you know, the, the fake it till you make it i think i don't think it's a good principle in relationships so and right. and people will know if you're just trying to extract something and maybe get a favor that people will feel it and it won't be productive. But yeah, Absolutely. if you have a year or two to, to start building that scrapbook, to start cultivating this garden of, of, of relationships, start slow, steady, and, uh, but without authenticity. And then, and then you'll see uh, organically things, things are going to happen. Of course, also, I, we didn't mention this, on, on LinkedIn there are groups if there are groups that are in domains that interest you or actually or just have you curious get in the group hear what they're saying you'll be learning the lingo you'll be hearing the culture mm. but also you'll be interacting maybe you'll at first you might be shy but eventually you'll respond and you'll you'll be known and someone will contact you and who knows what can come from there but if you're not super extroverted start slow at a pace and at an intensity that's comfortable for you but start today <laughs> And treat it as a research project. Exactly. I mean, you can experiment. You can you can leave aside things that don't work for you and try something else. Yeah, and 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 it's on on point. It's on character for us academics. <laughs> research project. Absolutely. Let's do this. Absolutely. Where can listeners find you, David? Uh, to connect with me, uh, LinkedIn is uh, the best. If you look for David Mendes, Papa PhD, you'll find me there. If you're on mostly on Twitter or Instagram. 
The podcast's uh, handle is at Papa PhD Podcast. The podcast originally was just called Papa PhD. I've just recently re uh, renamed it to Beyond the Thesis with Papa PhD because I was getting questions: Is this about parenthood? <laughs> and so I, I okay. it. <laughs> so uh, at Papa PhD Podcast. But LinkedIn is the best way. I'm I'm there, you know, every day. I'm I'm responsive. And if you want to listen to the podcast, just if you just plug Papa PhD into your listening listening app, your favorite one, and uh, the podcast will be there. And I would highly recommend that you do listen to uh, the podcast. It has all sorts of conversations with people who have you know made that transition from academia into an incredibly diverse range of interesting and stimulating jobs that aren't necessarily going to be at your your careers fair no exactly and i think that's one of the really interesting things is people find work that suits them exactly and often you know jobs aren't necessarily advertised but employers and clients need need work yeah Dr. David Mendez, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and insights with listeners of Right Medicine. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's, it was great having you to to ask me questions. Usually, I'm I'm doing the opposite, as right. you well know. You know how it is, and it was great. It was great to follow your your path to all these these very interesting questions. If anyone uh, wants to follow up uh, and and ask me questions. Uh, you know, uh, I guess my contacts will be in the show notes, but it'll be my pleasure. We'll make sure that all that information's in the show notes. Absolutely, it'll be my pleasure to continue this conversation with you, if you, if you, if you need. If you'd like to connect with me or today's guest, or access any of the resources we talked about, check out the show notes for this episode. They're on my website where you'll also find additional resources. Find the show notes at alexhausen.com forward slash write W-R-I-T-E dash medicine dash podcast. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the Write Medicine newsletter, where you'll find bi-weekly tips, tools and resources to help you create continuing medical education content with confidence. And thank you for listening today. Word of mouth is the most meaningful way we can help listeners find us and reach a wider audience. So please share this episode with a friend, a colleague or a client who might find the podcast helpful. And if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please write a favourable review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or share your testimonial on the dedicated testimonial link, which is also in the show notes.